It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Welcome once again to this is episode uh, 15 of Hard Hats and High Viz, where we look at local politics, media and sport. And joining me today is, uh, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack, all the way in Hong Kong. How are you, mate? Good, mate. It's a bit warm up here, I've got to tell you. Um, uh, I just checked my phone. We have a thing here that says feels like. It gives you the, 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 yes, the, yes. just yeah. how hot it is. And it's uh, it's only 10 o'clock in the morning, but it's already on 40. So, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, so I'm, I, I'm happily tucked up here with the aircon running, mate. Another mate, uh, a North Melbourne boy, was, uh, was watching from Hong Kong, from a restaurant in Hong Kong, I believe, and... Uh, he said it was pretty messy on Saturday as well, pretty hot, um, and uh, too hot for the yacht club. He said so. Um, uh, he had <laughs> retreated to a restaurant to watch the watch his beloved North Melbourne have a rare win. Yeah, and we'll yeah. Talk well, a little um, bit about that later. Well, I, I was in the pub on Saturday um, watching the Wallabies uh, lose to England. Um, uh, yes, and, and looking at the remnants of the. Uh, the crowd who'd been watching Ireland beat the All Blacks. Oh dear, yeah, I didn't catch that one. Look, as they, per uh, usual, it's the, it's the, I think it's the first time in some thirty years that someone's won a series uh, against the All Blacks in New Zealand. But the Irish have pulled well, it off, and they've now won huge five win. of their last eight tests against against the All Blacks. So that is a huge win. A nation of just uh, three million people, Jack. But I suppose they're playing a nation with just three million people anyway. But uh, absolutely mad rugby. But in Ireland, they play all sorts. They do. Um, as usual, I just want to remind our listeners uh, that if you like what you're listening to at Hard Hats and High Viz. Uh, give us a uh, give us a review on your podcast app, and also if uh, we love some feedback, even if it's just vicious and uh, and abusive, uh, we'd love. We to especially get you. like that. You're a masochistic streak in us, but yes, you can get hold of us at the conditional release program at gmail.com with any comments that you'd like to make. We'll be dealing with listener with a listener letter. Uh, towards the end of the program. Um, but uh, you can also get hold of me uh, on Twitter at Jack the Insider. DMs are open. It might take me a couple of days, but I will reply. Uh, now, Jack, COVID is rearing its ugly head in Australia again. We've got 97% of people vaccinated. Uh, two shots, very low uptake on the booster. Uh, and uh, and and real and, and recently uh, we've gone to a f- a second booster uh, for those aged thirty or more. That was that was brought in last week, and uh, and as the state of play at the moment, Jack is forty three thousand cases in Australia in the last twenty four hours. That's probably under because people are using rat tests and may not be reporting. Uh, so I'd suggest that's 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 well under. But nationwide, forty three thousand recorded cases across the country, three hundred and twenty eight thousand active cases across the country, 
only 4,602 in hospital. And I say only because that's going to cause a major problem in our, in our health system throughout the country. Only 144 in ICU. Um, in, in terms of cases, we are where we were on Australia Day. And, and for those who, who may have forgotten, that was a time of, of great upheaval too um, with supply um, uh, supply routes uh, through into food stores and supermarkets and things like that being broken down. We're still seeing that now. Um, so uh, uh, this, COVID- this, this puts Australia in about the same position as Singapore at the moment. Right. Okay. Um, uh, Singapore. Singapore has got about fifteen thousand cases yesterday, I think. Mm. Um, but they're, it's not well, quite the same size as Australia, um, uh, and they've got a few less people in ICU, but in much the same situation. There's, a, there's an absolute, you know, sort of um, uh, smorgasbord of of sub variants of the Omicron um, uh, virus that. Uh, that people can get, and what we're seeing now is everybody people, wants everybody wants their own variant. That's why <laughs> no, there's 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 one coming from India that we've been told to be a little bit cautious about because COVID was allowed to run rampant there for a long time. Um, but uh, uh, we've seen reinfection rates. Um, uh, WA Western Australia just brought in. Uh, um, they said that uh, un- reinfections were unlikely. Uh, over 12 weeks, but now they've changed their testing regimes to include those in four weeks. And anecdotally, I can tell you that people have had COVID, and sometimes they think they've just still got it, but they, but they, but in many cases they're getting reinfected. Mm. Um, it's mean it means a lot of people missing work at the moment. Um, uh, obviously, with 43,000 cases, it's a you know that's just in that's just in a day. Uh, and so that came to uh, came to a head yesterday when uh, the uh, uh, national um, uh, national state council uh, state state committee uh, got together and uh, and they have approved. Uh, in fact, it's been called a flip on the, uh, uh, for the for the prime minister a flip on the decision to cut payments to casual workers and others who don't have access to sick leave. Uh, the payments are seven hundred and fifty dollars per week, uh, split between the state in terms of uh, state and and the Commonwealth in terms of who pays them. And uh, Elbow uh, copped a bit of a bucketing from Susan Lee, the deputy opposition leader. Jack. Yeah, well, if I was Elbow, I wouldn't be worrying too much about that. You just dust yourself off and go on. Oh, I think in the end, the right decision was made. The point that she did make was that we had a f- sort of 14-day period when these payments weren't made available, and obviously, yeah. while the uh, while the while, while COVID was causing all, all, all sorts of ruckus in the uh, in the workforce, uh, this is what she said anyway. He doubled down and said those payments could not be made to her. She was referring to a, a person who actually uh, 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 was a casual worker and did not receive a COVID payment. Um, because she fell ill between July one and and the seventeenth of July is when these payments were reinstated. Then then Susan Lee goes on to say, now he's drag kicking and screaming to an emergency rush meeting of national cabinet, which uh, was held yesterday. Of course, we welcome the reinstatement of the payments payments, but this is two weeks after they stopped. Uh, so uh, you get the impression that the opposition. <laughs> 
So I'm playing a little bit opportunistic about this, Jack, because it was them who said that it should stop on July 1. Well, of course they're going to be opportunistic. They're going to play politics. That's what, that's what they're paid to do now. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's what Jim Chalmers said. Uh, the uh, the Treasurer said it was her government a little over eight weeks ago that designed this program and uh, wanted it to end at the end of June. They will well, whinge and they will complain. We will get on with our work. The the um, the, the thing about this is, is it's been the same from the beginning of the, of the pandemic, is that governments are making decisions on the run and they're not going to get them all right. No. You just got to change them when they're when they're demonstrably wrong. The other side of that coin is when you've got casual workers who don't have access to sick leave, and whether they test positive or not, regardless of almost what what whatever industry they're in, they're employed in, they're going to basically suck it up and go to work. And 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 so you do need to have these payments that allow them to stay at home and to isolate and to get better. Um, and so it was a bit of a no-brainer. I, I, I drove uh, to and from Canberra from uh, my bolt hole uh, on, uh, on Friday and it was all over ABC News that this was a most unfair thing. There was a particularly, uh, uh, a particularly aggressive interview from, uh, th- from the ABC from, uh, uh, I'll just think of, her, think of her name, and she took Mark Butler apart. Uh, and basically talked over the top of her. It's most un ABC like behaviour. Um, <clears throat> but uh, from the Radio National presenter, um, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, a former colleague of mine, so you think I'd know her name, Jack? Um, I can't but, remember her either. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and I missed uh, that bit. Yeah, I wasn't, no, was I wasn't driving to Canberra on Friday. Uh, it wasn't Alberici, but um, um, yeah, look. Um, Look, it was it was it was it was a pretty hot interview. Butler stayed true to uh, to the to the government line at the time, which was uh, you know we can't afford this on the budget. Bottom line, we've got a trillion dollars worth of incurred debt here, and uh, and to be coughing up any more was a bit of a problem. But all of that has been overturned. Uh, Patricia Cavallis. Patricia Cavallis, it was. I'm sorry to our um, listeners for not, yeah, so, Patricia so, so, for not remembering so, her name. So I've got um, no problem with uh, governments sticking to the line, at least in public, and then saying, "Well, look, no, we actually have got it right, and we've got to change their mind." You know, if if, if, they, if the opposition want to call it a flip or a flop or whatever they want to call it, that's fine. Yeah, look. In the end, I think the right decision was made. But you really need to be very careful about this because it's an enormous amount of Commonwealth and state money yes. that's being spent, you know, and, yeah, and so, it needs so a process and you need to be advised, you need to get the, the, the current yeah. status from health experts on, on what the best way to go is. And you haven't got the usual six months preparation which would take to um, a, mm. uh, decide a, an issue like this and to announce it. So you've got to do it in a few days or a week. Um, they're not going to get it all right. So we just have to accept that. Meanwhile, um, uh, the, the, the man from the West, PVO. Um, yes. Uh, he gave, uh, gave uh, Scott Morrison uh, a bit of a slapping uh, on Saturday. Is that what you're referring to in his well, column? Person, personally, I think PVO is a slightly odd person, even for a Western Australian who's on the project. I mean, that's two for two uh, for being a bit odd in my view. But... Um, uh, he did get stuck into him, didn't he? He did get stuck in him. I, I don't think much of it was unfair. 
um, uh, because I think uh, historically and politically, um, Scott Morrison is going to have to wear the blame for the election loss. He is uh, self-evidently the author of his own misfortune. Yes, indeed he is. Um, um, and, and look, I'd recommend that, uh, to our listeners to have a read of uh, uh, PVO's piece from Saturday. Um, <coughs> you, you, it really was. Uh, you know, you, you are, you are the the author of your own <laughs> of your own demise, sort of piece. Uh, but the most interesting item from the column is that Morrison, uh, PVO explained, has no great wealth, which we sort of un- understood, and only has access to standard parliamentary superannuation, which was the great shift in the parliamentary super plan uh, that was sort of engineered by uh, Mark Latham and, and John Howard in 2004. So he takes away with him superannuation that would not be unlike yours or mine over... Uh, well, I think he, he joined the parliament in 2007, didn't he? He was elected to a member of Cook in 2007, I think, if it he wasn't by election around that. Um, uh, so yes, he misses out on the uh, on the on the golden parachute. Uh, and uh, should we be giving our former PMs a bigger pension, Jack? Well, my attitude to the changes in the superannuation is that it was a Mark Latham idea. Um, uh, to, 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 to wreck our parliamentary it's superannuation. Generally a, it's generally a pretty good sign that it's not a it good one. It is, idea. yeah. So that's, that's, that, that should have a five-alarm a, a five uh, warning coming with it, you know, <laughs> um, uh, if it's a Mark Latham idea. And it's right up there with one of his best. It's a shocking idea. It was a bad plan. Um, it was done for cheap political reasons. Um, Howard yes, felt was. forced to go along with it, yeah. uh, and he did, but it's not improved things one little bit. There was a time there, Jack, where Mark Latham loomed heavily over John Howard. I don't think he ever passed him as uh, preferred Prime Minister, but Labor were back in the running in 2004 with Mark Latham's leadership. And and, and it's true that the history of this was that Latham, it was really a sort of cheap political shot to see what yeah. Howard would do. And Howard panicked and, and brought in these reforms. So anyone elected post-2004 or 2004 or beyond uh, would just receive a standard superannuation contribution uh, of from their own salary um, that, uh, that, that, that pretty much everyone takes. Politicians should be a little bit different, Jack, not least of all, and this is what we're getting to with Morrison, is that they don't, they're not very employable once they're done. No, and I don't want to see former Prime Ministers trailing their coat through the corporate world or worse still, uh, turning up in Beijing, opening opening doors for Australian companies up there. I think that's unseemly. Um, we have uh, a couple of ex-PMs who've done that and I don't think they've covered themselves in glory doing We have a couple of ex-PMs who've behaved pretty well, I've got to say, mm. Um, mm. Um, but... Uh, I think we should be returning to the old superannuation scheme. Yes, and and that was basically a Commonwealth contribution. And look, they do have some benefits. It must be said that anyone who loses pre-selection as a sitting member immediately gets a payment of a hundred thousand dollars. Oh well, at the, at at the point of the election, um, uh, because they. Um, uh, <coughs> Uh, you know, it, it, like I say, uh, Christensen in Dawson received a hundred thousand dollar payment. He almost certainly not stu- wasn't going to stand again, but still took the hundred grand. Yeah. Um, 
<coughs> and so, yeah, that, that, that's sort of a six-month cushion. <coughs> but we don't want to see our Prime Minister's down at Central Station uh, rattling a tin either, do we, Jack? No, no we don't. No, no, no. Uh, I, I think we should have. I think the original super super scheme, uh, with some adjustments, was much better. Yeah. Just, be, it, just before we leave Peter Van Onselen, one thing he did say, which which amused me about the column, which I think I think you're right. Our listeners should read the column, but he was talking about how delusional um, he thinks Scott Morrison has been post the election, um, uh, and that made me wonder whether. Peter Van Onselen has ever heard of a Mr. Kevin Rudd or a Mr. Malcolm <laughs> Turnbull. Um, uh, um, uh, if he's worried about former prime ministers being del- delusional about why they lost office, because um, I don't think uh, Scott Morrison would get on the podium. Those two would absolutely be on the podium. Oh, I think for he's, he's getting. He, he, he look. He's, I think he's looking at a bronze. Bronze Jack. Um, yeah, the, 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 the issue here is, I mean, Malcolm got rolled by his own party. Kevin Rudd was finished off uh, in uh, 2013. That's absolute uh, rubbish, Jack. They were both absolutely massacred by your employer. Rupert Murdoch destroyed them both. <laughs> I'm not sure that that is really the case. I think people had, had, a, had a chance to have a good No, I've, at... listen, I, I've listened to Malcolm and Kevin talk about this, and they're sure this is what's Oh, happening. yeah, well, they would be, you see. And this is my point. And whether it's Morrison, Rudd or Turnbull or whoever, they cling to this and they create a narrative around their own legacy that is all about their legacy now. Forget the pensions for a moment. They want, and it's always done in a self-serving way, I was terrific, but uh, but I was let down by other people. Um, or the uh, or the evil Rupert Murdoch somehow managed. Well, to, that's yeah, that's it, not something Scott Morrison can go to. No, so his no. his current go his current go to is, oh well, we had a pandemic and you know we did our best, um, but uh, but it's I am basically a victim of the pandemic, but it's okay, Jack. It's going to be okay because Scott Morrison says God has a plan for him. Don't tell me God. I think it's I think it's going on the speech circuit and earning lots of money. Would yeah. that be it, God? I wonder if God has, has, has actually told him. Um, he also characterised anxiety as Satan's plan hmm. and called for people to put their faith in Christ over governments in a sermon at a church at the church founded by Margaret Court. Ooh, it's an interesting. Mm. Interesting sort of place. I mean, look, he's, he has, well, he's still a member for Cook, so he's got some responsibilities, but he seems to be travelling around the country wanting people to pat him on the back. People do do odd things after an election, don't you? But don't they? Remember Bill Shorten going on a victory lap after he lost? Yeah, he did do the national tour again, didn't he? You know, mm. I, 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 I honestly think I was talking about this with a not a not a journalistic colleague, but a friend on Friday, and I, I really do think the country dodged a bullet there um, <clears throat> in in twenty nineteen. Uh, what we got, however, was a government that didn't expect to win. They didn't expect to win in 2019. And so when they did win, Jack, they didn't really have a plan. (laughs) It was, as Paul Keating described it, uh, the point of the Scott Morrison government, according to Paul, was it had no point. It was pointless. And that was kind of it. And so we had sort of three years of of a government without any sort of plan and and, uh, 
without any sort of narrative to get them through, and then they got whacked with with a pandemic uh, early well, in to 2020. Be, to be fair, to be fair, in that election, um, the only plan either of them had. Bill's plan was he wanted to be prime minister, and Scott's plan was he wanted to stay prime minister. Well, the only you know, there's some of the things now that I'm sure any person in Treasury would say were, were actually good ideas. Um, were, were, were nuked by were nuked by the coalition, and that is, you know, looking at reforms to um, uh, the tax benefits for for um, um, for uh, uh, for shareholders, um, for, for for people who have a lot of money in stock, uh, and also for. Um, uh, all, the, all those people who held investment properties or would go on to hold investment properties from because um, that was the reform that the, the, the building that the, the, the dwellings that were constructed post a certain period they weren't actually bad reforms it is a lot of money to be spending on middle class essentially middle class welfare and maybe those things needed to be reformed but at the same time I think if we had have had Bill Short as a Prime Minister, we would have had quite a few problems. The um, uh, the idea of middle-class welfare in Australia generally needs to be looked at, um, yeah. uh, even before we left the country to, to move up to Asia. Um, uh, the idea that um, you know, uh, a, a pair of lawyers were getting ch- subsidies for childcare struck me as absurd at the time and still does today, as indeed the tax system in Australia needs to be looked at. Yeah, it does indeed. But the experience of 2019 tells us that parties in opposition can't go can't go for the big the big reform items. They're going to have to sort of sneak their way into power. Or, or, if, or, if, they are go, or if they are going to go to a, an election with those sort of policies, they're going to need a more impressive leader than Bill Shorten to carry Yeah, them. that's probably where the blame lies there. So God has a plan for Scott Morrison, Jack, well, and I think I'm it pleased means for Scott. I'm international, pleased Scott. international speaking circuit with his hand out. And the Libs have another problem, um, and not just Scott Morrison and well, when he's going to leave politics or, or the parliament, um, but according to uh, an op-ed in The Australian Today, um, Linda Reynolds talks about the, the Libs having a women problem, and it also featured uh, uh, with an editorial in the Oz saying that um, uh, using uh, <coughs> using gender targets uh, was was probably not a good idea. It should come down to the value of the individual. But nevertheless, um, as Linda Reynolds writes, uh, the Liberal Party has known it has a problem. In early 2016, after several reviews, the party quietly, so very quietly, adopted a 50% gender target. And that's something we didn't know, isn't it, Jack? A target that has been in place for the past three federal elections. The trouble is that it was adopted so quietly that it has not been implemented by a single state or territory division of the party. This can only be seen as three elections of lost opportunities, according to Linda Reynolds. She goes on to say, despite having a target, it is still impossible to have a meaningful conversation with the Lim- within the Liberal Party on gender. This is because nothing strikes greater terror in Liberal men and women than two little words, gender quotas. And while Liberal Party members un- unquestioningly accept so many other forms of quotas, party quotas, faction quotas, state and territory quotas, gender quotas is simply not a topic for polite and, in inverted commas, sound Liberal conversations. Uh, it sounds like they're just going to bang their heads over this one, Jack. Yeah, you know, well, that's, you know, that's, it's a matter for them, really. 
Yeah, but I mean, let's let's talk about the level of representation in 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 the um, in the lower house, Jack. It's just appalling. Well, they got twelve or 50, 50, 51 or whatever it is. You know, it's 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 sitting around about ten percent. Um, uh, the, the, the female rep- representation, and they need to get that fixed. The problem is, I don't think they're capable of it. Well, they either will or they won't. But it's a matter for them. You know, I mean, they, they've got bigger problems than, than than the women problem at the moment. Well, I, think they, that's, I think what, that's. I think that is number one to... number one problem for the Liberal Party right now. What they've I've... got to do is something that Peter Van Onselen raised in his column. He thought that. The way Morrison was behaving, um, his delusions um, uh, could keep the Liberals out of power for 11 years, as indeed Labor was out of power for 11 years after John Howard won in 1996. I think Van Onselen's wrong about that. What kept Labor out of power for 11 years after Howard won in 1996 was that the Labor Party um, thought that they had lost because the voters got it wrong and spent the next 11 years or most of that next 11 years telling the voters that they got it wrong and that because Howard supported, largely supported the economic reforms of the Hawke-Keating era, the Labor Party walked away from those reforms and disowned them despite the fact that they were hugely successful. That's what kept Labor out of power for 11 years and the Liberal Party got to be careful that they don't get in the same track. I mean, look, it might have kept them out. I, look, I, I have a, di- I, ha- I have a different. I know what you're saying. I have a different view about it, but I don't want to get into the, the history of Labor. I mean, you could say 2001 was was an election within the shadows of of uh, 9/11, uh, and uh, and also some domestic uh, domestic issues around immigration. 2004, Mark Latham. Uh, and we've just discussed Mark, and I think he was unelectable. Um, so yeah, there was this, there were some other things working there. But but what you're talking about is the same kind of phenomenon. This the phenomenon, the same sort of delusion that says, oh well, perhaps not that the people got it wrong, but the people might have got it wrong briefly, and then they will turn to the Liberal Party as some sort of you know uh, open embrace with the, with a party, the, the natural party of government in Australia. That's the delusion, I think, and they just seem to be going on about these things. Firstly, they're ignoring the big, the, you know, the, the, the big problem, and that is Scott Morrison, and he's not leaving, and he's making he's making speeches in Seoul about uh, 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 you know about our relationship with the Chinese. Uh, he's popping over uh, the Margaret Courts. Uh, church and, uh, and and telling us that God has got a God has got a plan for him. Uh, I, I, there'll be people like Peter Dutton saying, "I wonder if your plan is to resign as a member for Cook, because that's our mm. first step in getting back." Uh, and then we've got these overarching issues of of, of a, a severe underrepresentation from women within the Liberal Party, and I think while they continue, if this is going to be something that, according to uh, according to Linda Reynolds, cannot be discussed within the Liberal Party, uh, then they can't go forward. You know, they will stagnate. Yeah. Well, they, that's something they've got to sort out for themselves. There's a whole lot of things to sort out, but that's not the most important one. The most important one is just get back to being a decent opposition. That's all they've got to do. I think what a lot of Australians want to see, but it's not 
necessarily healthy for the Liberal Party is <clears throat> is that they have a profound and public examination of their failures. Now, that's probably not what they want or need, but they are simply just sailing on as if really that's- nothing. A little bit of a hiccup. We've had to change offices. We've gone down the other side uh, in the parliament. But other than that, you know, we're, we're just coming and going to come out swinging. And I no, think that's, that's going to that's piss a, rot- a lot of people That's off. a rotten idea. I wouldn't do that for a moment. No, don't, have a, don't have a public um, uh, no, no, self evisceration. Um, just get on with being a decent opposition. I think my, my, my major problem with that is that is that if they come out carping and whining, it's going to go over really badly. So they do need to have some sort of conversation with the Australian people about why they got it wrong and accepting responsibility for it. They haven't done any of that yet. They've just sort no, of shuffled no, no. on us like it's absolutely a the, Absolutely the wrong approach. Anyway, we can disagree. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just think, you know, they won't be listened to. They could absolutely disappear. Jack, major parties don't have... Uh, don't have a, uh, <coughs> any guarantees on their, you know, uh, their livelihood going next, going from election to election. And we've seen in the Western Australian Liberal Party, if you just ignore your problems, you will go away. The problems yeah, won't go away. Yeah. You will. I don't um, think they'll. I don't think they'll be disappearing. Anyway, <laughs> not just what yet. else is happening in the world? Take a couple of couple of elections. Well, when we're looking at Sri Lanka. Uh, and and while we've covered this, and we've covered this, I reckon better than just about anybody. But we're, uh, we, we were onto we were onto the story a little bit, a little bit in front of us. We were a good six weeks ahead on this, and and that's that's not uh, due to any great perspicacity on our part. We were just watching, and now everyone's watching Sri Lanka, including us, the Australian media. And we're very Australian-centric in our podcast today, but that's okay. I'm quite comfortable with that. Chris Mitchell wrote a piece, uh, which I'd also recommend people have a look at, um, very even-handed, actually, and knows what he's talking about. And he says that, you know, the ABC and its flagship 730 program has not mentioned the issue of the fertiliser ban uh, as, co- as as being a – well, he said it was an causative factor, but it was a contributing factor to um, – uh, well, we, it's, it's more than economic woes. It's officially called an economic crisis in in Sri Lanka. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the right wing media like Sky and Fox have run off and said that this is all to do with the failure of green policies. You know, ABC ignores it. The right wing goes to town on 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 uh, on that fertilizer ban, saying it was really just the the, the, the big thing that occurred in. Sri Lanka. What I liked about Chris's piece was that he looked at all sides, and also looked at um, at, at that uh, uh, at that issue of the fertilizer ban and how it arose. Um, <coughs> and uh, he did um, he did he did miss one important point, uh, Chris. Um, we'll give him a nine out of ten for the call. Um, he missed the the, the, Easter, the Easter bombings of the churches in um, uh, in 2019, which had already yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, great havoc on the tourism uh, industry. Because for listeners, the, the, the Sri Lanka's foreign reserves were coming from really only two sources: tourism and tea. And tourism and um, tea, yeah. And um, and the and the tourism the tourist <laughs> trade was already struggling post the uh, the, the Easter twenty nineteen bombings before COVID hit. COVID was just the the killer blow. 
Well, uh, what I did like about Chris's piece is that it was completely balanced about that. So here he says, the Raj Parks of government had been mishandling the economy long before the fertiliser decision. There's a Z in there, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, that's American spelling. COVID-19 and the collapse in tourism to Sri Lanka that followed hit the island nation hard. Its main sources of foreign exchange, revenue, were tourism and agricultural exports. Both have come to a screeching halt and the country's poorest farmers are feeling the pain most. Soaring global prices for the foodstuffs they can now not grow in sufficient quantity and the petrol and gas they must import last month forced Sri Lanka into talks so far unsuccessful for an international monetary fund bailout. That must now wait for a new constitutionally elected government in Colombo, and I think that'll take some time. Anyway, many many economists, Chris writes, were sceptical at the time of the Rush Parks' COP26 commitment, and that's something we'll talk about in a minute, Jack, arguing the government was betting on organic farming because it could, could not afford to import fertilisers. The Wall Street Journal last week pointed out that even before the pandemic, Sri Lanka had been hit by, and he quotes, an accumulation of debt on infrastructure spending and sweeping tax cuts that drain government revenue, unquote. I guess my point, my view of it is that um, other countries have been hit um, like Sri Lanka has with loss of tourism and loss of exports. Um, uh, and, and foreign exchange problems. Yeah, the Sri Lanka situation was made much, much worse by the organic decision, the decision to go organic farming. Um, so it, it was the proximate cause of its present extreme difficulties. They would have been in trouble anyway if the situation was just made a hell of a lot worse. Yes, um, you know, that's no uh, doubt or, about that. Or, 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 as I said before, organic food is really just for the rich and the very poor. Yeah, I, I guess what we're talking about, and we, we, we won't know. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that the, that, that ban, that fertiliser ban was lifted in November. So it was really just a six-month absolute crop failure in tea and rice and other, uh, and other staples in Sri Lanka. But it, but it, will, take a, it will take more than one crop. Oh, yeah. For the situation to return to what it was before the well, ban. they can't because we, one, we've got a chronic shortage of of uh, chemical fertilisers, and two, they haven't got the foreign they haven't got the foreign money to buy it. Yeah, that, so that yeah. becomes a it becomes a structural problem. I mean, Sri Lanka has had a structural um, a balance of payments issues that go back to nineteen forty nine. Uh, and and at the end of its civil war in 2009, it focused on providing goods to its domestic market rather than boosting foreign trade. And so these problems were looming. And I honestly believe, and we, we won't know, you, you would only have to wait for Rose Puxa to say this, and then you probably couldn't believe it anyway. Um, but this decision, the decision was taken on May 2 last year, um, by Rose Parks to ban um, uh, fertilisers. It was done without any consultation uh, and no support for farmers, let alone no support for farmers. But it was done with no consultation. It was just done out of the blue. And that tells me that uh, he's looking at this and going, well, here, we can save two, two or three hundred million in imports. Yeah, and it was also done with the support of, you know, people like Joseph Stieglitz at the World Economic Forum, you know, um, and, and what's her name, Vandava Shiva. Right? Yeah, they applauded yeah, it. There's yeah, no doubt yeah, about they, that. They were all cheering it on. So all the mm. do-gooders around the world, the environmentalists, were cheering it on. So beware of people with, um, uh, with good ideas, is my view. 
Well, it wasn't a good idea, it, but it seemed like a bad idea at the time, Jack, and that, and that was just the thing, and that's why the COP26 people should sort of be hanging their heads. But, um, yes. It, Beware it, of the do-gooders. The, it, it, it was sold to them without – it was sold to Sri Lankan farmers without any support, uh, without any – you know, you go through reform and you think, okay, well, we're going to – one, we're going to consult. Two, we're going to provide provisions and support for this shift in your farming methods. But no, that happened. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jack. Jack and I constantly tangle about electric vehicles, and Jack is constantly wrong. Um, but today <laughs> we have new, we have news of a hydrogen vehicle. So, so says someone who has the gift of faith. Yeah. No. 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 Look, I honestly believe that uh, electric vehicles are a transition, and that hydrogen is where it's going to be, and certainly in Australia. And uh, the New South Wales and Victorian governments. Uh, have announced that they will spend $20, $20 million, it's not a lot of money, but it's uh, $20 million on hydrogen refuelling stations along the Hume Highway, Australia's busiest freight highway, in a push to see more zero emissions technology used in the heavy vehicle industry. Hydrogen can move trucks, Jack, um, and that's the thing. Uh, and we've got quite a lot of green hydrogen uh, available in this country. We have some real benefits there. Um, and uh, they will spend $10 million on grants to manufacture about 25 hydrogen fuel trucks and at least four refuelling stations along the 840-kilometre Hume Highway between Sydney and Melbourne, one that I've driven many, many times. Yes. So um, uh, these things are important, surely. I mean, and, and we do have an industry set up. We have, a, we have an industry ready to go, basically, on, in hydrogen. If it works, it's great. And you see most of the, you know, we talked in an Around the World program about a week ago, Jack, we talked about Mr. Toyota with a D, um, T-O-Y-O-D-A, who's the uh, the big boss at Toyota, uh, and he was having a bit, of a, a bit of a swipe at electric vehicles. Toyota don't manufacture a, uh, an electric vehicle, they are, but they are global leaders in um, uh, hybrid technology. But they are also developing, as is BMW, there's the Audi. There are quite uh, quite a lot of the major major vehicle manufacturers at the pointy end um, developing hydrogen vehicles. Now. That's because there are inherent problems with electrical vehicles, particularly in in certain weather conditions. Uh, batteries don't like the cold, um, yeah. uh, so um, uh, you have a uh, an extreme range problem with electric vehicles when it gets very cold. So that, that wipes out a good deal of the world for, for using those. Um, so yeah, no, if, that's the, right. if, if, if the hydrogen technology can be made to work uh, and can be made to work in a way that, that people will that people will use it, good luck. Yeah, and, and look, when you also mentioned um, electric batteries for cars, there are rare metals in them that are becoming more and more expensive. Australia does provide, uh, well, I think we've got quite a lot of nickel in this country. Um, I think most of the lithium comes from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and prices are rising uh, in rare metals and that means that the cost of the vehicle because of the cost of the battery has increased. That's the way it's going. Uh, very good news, Jack. As we turn to sport, uh, wonderful weekend of sport, as we mentioned, but Cameron Smith, 
not the uh, not the uh, uh, Storm captain now retired, but uh, Australia's uh, uh, the man with the mullet. Yeah, he's got a fantastic mullet, hasn't he, Cameron Smith? He, yeah. He's won he's won a St Andrews. He's won, I think, it's the hundred and fiftieth British Open, isn't he? Yes, and just yeah. won it with a with just came from came from the clouds. Well, he he, he was um, on the on the leaderboard on the Saturday uh, and had a couple of real bad holes and dropped to dropped it back to about four behind the leaders, I think, four shots behind the leaders. But he's reeled off six birdies on the back nine, wow. um, five on the trot um, uh, to 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 win the win the tournament. Didn't see the seventeenth. How he played the seventeenth? That is a nightmare hole. If you know, you know well, Jack. You've basically got a fire over the clubhouse uh, onto mm. the fairway. It is very, very difficult indeed. And then, then the then the setup to the greens. Get the deepest bunker you can possibly imagine to the left. Very uneven green surface. Very. He had, tough to, he had to putt around that um, uh, that bunker. Did he? Uh, yeah. And he, ch- he chose to putt rather than chip. Um, uh, and um, uh, he pulled it off. Um, so he's basically two-putted from off the green. Uh, oh, it'd be, it'd be like chipping onto the, the bottom of a Volkswagen, you know. I mean, yeah. can, the ball can just go anywhere. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> it really is. That's a tough hole. Uh, and the back nine is, is generally considered to be harder than the front nine. So he's done extremely well. He was and in he, he's, quite a, he's quite a character, this fella. He he's is, a Queenslander. He's, he's, uh, and he's a Bogan's Bogan. There's just no doubt about it. it. He uh, said, um, uh, what does he like? He likes fast cars and fishing. Um, yeah, you know. he, and, and he also likes beer, Jack, and and that's that's yeah. that's a positive uh, that's a positive in his character. And, the, said, and the, tro- the trophy for the, trophy, the yeah. open is called the claret jug because it jug. looks like a large claret jug. And he said, "I'm definitely going to find out how many beers sit in this thing. That's for sure." And he's probably already <laughs> done that already. Well, so, he's probably probably still working on it. Uh, now the question is, he's just. Uh, one Australian, and he's, I think he's the sixth Australian to win the British Open. Yeah, first, for, first for 25 years or so. Yeah, yeah. it's been a yeah. long time. Uh, and yeah. that, that brings uh, Greg Norman, who had, whew, he, uh, he he sort of lost the unlosable uh, at St Andrews, didn't he? Um, um, he did. Uh, <clears throat> but that brings him into play now because Cameron Smith, well, with, with the win now is presumably much sought after in what we call the what we will call the World Series of Golf. I'm not sure what they actually call it, but the non-PGA tournament that's, uh, uh, I guess, uh, managed or by, or at least he's a serious uh, heavyweight consultant to, Greg Norman. So will Cameron Smith play in the World Series of, of Golf, the, uh, the, Saudi, the Saudi show? Uh, he's uh, yeah. said, uh, well, this is Cameron's response to it. Um, I don't know, mate. My team around me worries about all that stuff. I'm here to win golf tournaments. So he's uh, given given the given that one uh, given that one the uh, the front foot uh, defence. Um, yeah, my my guess is he probably won't. Probably won't. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, he's going to be much sought after in, in, within the PGA for a very long time. So he's going to get invitations basically to every every major event and every minor one for that matter for a very long time on the basis of that win. Well done, that man, Jack. And, and he's hot. And this is 
this is his first major, but he won what they call the fifth major, the uh, the, the Players' Championship, um, and won that easily. So he's really hot. And, and besides, there's only so much money you can spend on fast cars and fishing. <laughs> and beer. And beer. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that and see which way he goes. But, uh, yeah, the future, whichever way uh, you look at it, is very, very bright for Cameron Smith. Um, Good luck to him. Uh, footy, uh, the AFL in particular, and the rule returned with a vengeance. Sack the coach, win the next game. The North Melbourne, yes. not a dry eye in the house, Jack. North, North Melbourne... Uh, gave uh, gave the Tigers a bit of a touch-up for three quarters. It always looked like they were going to run out of steam, but they hung in and won by, I think, three or four points, wasn't it? Um, less than a goal. And, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and the North Melbourne faithful were bereft with emotion. Well... Look, they did their best. They did their best to lose it uh, towards the end, yeah. North. Um, but they were outdone by the Tigers, who Richmond did even more just to lose to grasp it. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, there was some. Uh, there were a lot of errors at the end. You know, yeah. there were a lot of errors, a lot of pressure. Uh, North got, North got the points. It was a strange thing. I didn't know who the coach was. It's it's Patch Adams who's played played a hundred odd games for North Melbourne and then mm. had to retire with concussion. Tough, a tough sort of uh, defender. Um, and he was the VFL coach. And John Blakey was the one of the assistants at North Mel, Mel uh, North Melbourne under the sacked coach and Blakey. Didn't even he, he wasn't even told by the he was told by the media that he didn't get the job. So there's some yeah. yeah this, the, 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 Blakey's the bloke who um, who coached up in um, who assistant coached up in Sydney for yeah yeah many it, many it's a major fact, major coup to get him. You know? in, in fact, his son um, uh, is a is a ribbing player for uh, uh, playing on the halfback flank for the Swans yeah. now. Yeah, well, it was a major coup for, for, for North to pick him up and, and, and put him in their, their football department. Um, but uh, and, and one would have thought he would be the most likely, but no, it went to the VFL. It went to the VFL uh, coach, uh, Patch Adams. A very strange sort of decision. Anyway, he's a, he probably should retire now. He's got a 100% win record, you know, really. <laughs> I think he's ready to go, but the fact that John Blakey found that out in the media was pretty bloody ordinary. It's it's also a pretty fair indication that that the problems at North Melbourne go a fair bit deeper than the coach. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. So I asked uh, a bit of an insider at North Melbourne. uh, I I said to him, well, um, uh, uh, the the only reason you'd sack Noble was... um, uh, because he'd lost the players, and had he lost the players, as you see, he didn't know. Uh, mm. He didn't know, and and he, and he would say if he did know. Uh, but um, yeah, it uh, it is one of those things. Now, Jack, you're talking about the most valuable players in the MVPs of the AFL, and you think there's gone, there's undergone considerable change. Yeah, well, all of a sudden we're not talking about Dusty or Dangerfield or Nat Fife or any of these players. I reckon at the moment the three most influential players are Mark Blixabs uh, from Geelong. Um, uh, uh, Chris, Chris Scott says he's not a defender. He's a midfielder who can play back, <laughs> but he also plays in the ruck. 
Um, uh, last week against Melbourne, he played in the ruck against Max Gorn, and when he wasn't rucking, he was picking up Christian Petrarca, and when Christian Petrarca was off the ground, he was rolling onto Clayton Oliver. And you look think about that, you say, well, this bloke's played um, on the three most important players in the Melbourne side, and one. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, overall and, he won. Yeah, I yeah, mean, and, and, and and they've won the game. And this week he picks up your Paddy Cripps and has a good game on Paddy Cripps as yeah, well. Yeah, and did some rucking around the ground. So it's a, so it's how how it works is that that the uh, Richmond, uh, sorry, the, the the Geelong Ruckman, uh, who uh, let's say the bounce down at first moment. What's his name? The big tall blonde uh, fellow, Reece Stanley. Yeah, Reece Stanley. So he'll take the first knock and then he'll just go straight down forward. And and yeah. and the ruckman has to either go the his opposite opposite ruckman either has to go with him or get found out if the ball's delivered to him, or or stay in the contest and ruck the next one. So it causes all sorts of problems um, because Blixarves is a ruckman and it, well he's he's another utility player. Who else you got? And a very very gifted athlete. He can run all day and run at speed. Yeah, just the other bloke, the, the, the next one who I think is really. Um, uh, come out of nowhere, not come out of nowhere, but all of a sudden become a very important player is Chad Warner from the Swans. Um, uh, he's, uh, yeah, he his last month has been, on, yeah, his um, last month has been spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the third one uh, is the young Dacos. Um, uh, he's the best first-year player I've seen since Chris Judd. Yes, the Pies sadly had another win um, uh, on the weekend. I, I remember you and I were both at the at a West Coast game when Judd first came across to play at the SCG against uh, Sydney, and I know that we were both staggered that this bloke playing his sixth game or something was just picking up the ball in the middle of a pack and running away from the pack with the ball in his hand. Yeah. Um, and, and we were astounded at that as a first-year player, and Dacos is every bit as good. I think he kicked five from the wing in a quarter, Judd, um, and uh, and just thought, no, look, he's he is rare. <laughs> he's not just rare in a go. He's actually got the best players in the yeah, competition yeah. covered. This, this, is, this is not a promising bloke in his first year. This is a bloke who's ready to go today. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Dacos, Dacos is like that. He's he's ready, mate. He's ready, mate. Yeah, look, there's there's nothing wrong with him. He, as I said, you know, they they had a they snuck a win really. They snuck a, another win against a very brave Adelaide, who've got you know. And I think they're just really well coached and going really well for the for the stage in their rebuild they're at. Um, um, but uh, and and it was pouring with rain throughout most of the day, and and Dacos was like he was using the ball like it was dry weather, and everyone else was struggling with with uh, disposal efficiency. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, his his father was a gem, so uh, he looks like he's going well, well on the way to be. He's, he's going to be probably more effective because his his father was handy around goals, more than handy around goals, must be said. But oh, he was, he was pretty good in the middle as well. Yeah. All right. I think uh, I think that young bloke might uh, might have the old man covered, but we'll see. He certainly debuted uh, spectacularly this season. And to wrap up today, we have uh, a, 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 a reader letter. In fact, Shane got hold of me on Twitter, which we encourage all people to do. And Shane has asked us about the state of education in Australia. He talks about serious issues of workplace practices, workload and pain a field that is a clear economic and social benefit. No one could argue that. Um, he says, where have the wheels fall, fallen off? What policies going forward should we consider? Cut funding to private schools, lift teacher pay, make teachers work 38-hour weeks, 
um, he's keen to get our thoughts, Jack. So I'll ask you yours. How do we lift Australia's academic achievement, uh, particularly critical skills in in literacy and numeracy? Well, we have to be a little bit careful talking about this, Jack, because in our family there are a lot of teachers oh, yes. and, uh, and, uh, and quite a few of them listen to our podcast and they mightn't be happy if we, uh, if we start uh, no, searching teachers at all. No, no, absolutely. I mean, when you turn 17 and ask yourself, so, so what are you going to teach? Um, <laughs> it was a bit like that, wasn't it? You know? well, a little bit like that. But, but, yeah, so we do need to be very judicious, Jack, very, very, very tactful. I can remember having a converse, conversation in a, in, a, in a sort of semi-public forum with my old pal Julia Gillard about this while she was still in opposition uh, and she was talking about how she wanted, uh, she was deputy opposition leader I think by this stage, she wanted Labor to go back to making politics or winning, uh, sorry, making education a winning political issue for the party, which in her view it hadn't been for some time and I, I was a bit inclined to agree with that. Um, she herself was a product of a very, very good state high school in Adelaide, uh, and she was uh, decrying the way that, uh, in particular, state Labor governments had sort of undermined the selective and better state public high schools. Um, and um, I think a, a good deal of the problem Labor's had politically has been because of that. Yeah, so, I mean, we're certainly not going to bad teachers because I you know, honestly think, you know, it, it is of critical importance uh, that we do have very good teachers at our schools. We know some of them aren't always going to be terrific and we'll know that from our own experiences, but... Um, but and that's, just, and that's just human nature. You can't no, expect everyone, no, any, no, any right. profession to be all good. You know? No greater gift to society than a very good teacher and a committed teacher uh, and committed to the entire classroom, you know. Um, so um, uh, we do find that there's a lot of uh, political playing and culture war stuff about teachers and, oh, we don't know what's being taught to them and they're being taught all these things about gender and so forth. I, I mean, I, I think those are things that... Uh, we uh, we really need to get past, but there are some there are some curriculum issues there. I mean, for example, history is is, is being pretty much overlooked in um, uh, in in that year seven to year ten space. It's often compacted into a social studies thing, which is a combination of geography and social studies and those sorts of things. So you tend to have a very very tend to leave school with a with not a great understanding of what's happened in Australia in the last two hundred years and beyond that, um, for that matter too. Um, mathematics and science never our strong suits, Jack. Um, um, but uh, we're, what we're starting to see now is a lot more engagement among young girls in maths and science, and that's a that's a that's a thing. One thing I would say that we don't want to that we want to avoid as a society is just um, in compelling our children uh, into this sort of you must succeed. Uh, uh, according to mummy's and daddy's wishes, you must succeed, and that means you'll have outside tutors. Uh, that means uh, you'll you'll do three or four hours homework a night. Um, uh, and I think we want to avoid those sorts of things. And there are all manner of social problems coming out of those sorts of situations. Some of them you may witness in uh, in Hong Kong, Jack, and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. 
Yeah, I feel sorry for the little kids here. Uh, you see them uh, being handed back to the helpers from the, from the bus. They have a bus mum on the bus, and you see these little kids of three and four who do two lots of school um, a, a day. Um, they'll do uh, Chinese Chinese kindy in the morning and English kindy in the afternoon, or vice versa. Uh, and little and little fellows are asleep when they get home from school <laughs> because they're just exhausted. Yes. And the, and they really should just be playing at that age. I think yeah. one of the great one of the great cons of uh, of our time is this rebranding of uh, childcare as early childhood education. They should just be playing. Yeah, absolutely. That's where imagination comes from. Imagination gets developed and those sorts of things. Look, it's an unfortunate thing and it's just the way the world is that, that you know, when kids do 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, some some parents uh, put it off for as long as possible, but then they'll be flipping through the mobile phone. Now, there's all sorts of potential um, shortcomings to all of that, but then they've got access to this gargantuan library called the internet that uh, that where where most answers can be derived. Yeah, we had to make do with a, a tattered copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica if we were lucky. <laughs> yeah, what I, what, my what case is 40 years old. What I would say is that I think that um, uh, we need to, you know, do what we can to have great state public schools and, and great private schools as well. I, I'd also add... I don't think it's an either. I don't think it's an either-or argument. That we really need to revisit the idea of technical schools as well for mm. um, uh, for kids that aren't ac- of a, an academic bent who can who can basically decide at a fairly young age, 13, 14, uh, to go off and, dev- and 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 do a trade or or, or 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 prepare themselves for doing for doing a trade, and that should be driven by, you know, what the skills. Uh, of the future are going to be. If, if our, you, our, our tech schools in Victoria were excellent. They were yeah, excellent yeah. in their day, and then they're all sort of disposed of or merged into mm. in, 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 into uh, into one sort of. The, the, the idea that every kid needs to go and get a university degree is just is a mistake. Well, we need to sort of understand what those skills. When we talk about electric vehicles and all that sort of stuff, Jack, so half half jokingly about about the great. But if you were going to say to anyone, if you want to have a look at a if you want to have a look at a trade, being an electrician is going. You are never going to be short of work uh, in the future. Um, so yes, uh, and an electrical engineer, all these sorts of things. I mean, the other thing to 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 to, and we've discussed this in previous episodes. And when we get to education, don't think that once you hit the year twelve, HSC, VCE, whatever it is, is that the be all and end all. I mean, that's it's really just the beginning. And if you don't don't get a good one. It, it should not set you back. Um, no, if, no, 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 no. Um, it's just part of life's rich tapestry. But it doesn't – your life's not going to be determined when you're 18. No, that's exactly right. Um, look, I, for all that said, I, I mean, when we talk about failures, I don't think our failures are all that serious. And when I look at young people, uh, whether they're 17, 18-year-old or 8 or 9, um, they look like pretty good kids, well-adjusted kids most – for, for the most part. So we're not getting everything wrong. Um, perhaps a little bit more playtime, uh, Jack. A little bit more playtime uh, outside of the classroom. Give him a footy, Jack. Mm. Give him a footy, let him have a kick in the park. <laughs> All right, thank you very much uh, for your time today, Jack. Um, uh, and uh, we remind our listeners on Hard Hats and High Viz, episode 15, 
if you've liked what you've heard or even if you've disliked it and disliked it intensely, get a hold of us uh, on the conditional release program at gmail.com or uh, flick me a DM uh, on Twitter and I will get to it. And just like Shane, we will have a chat about your uh, your criticism or your uh, question, whatever it may be. <clears throat> and Jack, thank you for your we, time again. We enjoy the battle of ideas, so just because you disagree with us, don't be shy about writing and telling us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. No, that's the way it needs to be. That's how you sort problems out. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you once again, listeners, and we'll see you next week. Cheers.